Good morning. It is wonderful to be together. Um, this has been a this has been a busy morning. We've got a, a lot of faces here and a lot of people to visit with and talk to. As Tyler was uh, coming up to do announcements, I think I texted him like twelve different things to add to his announcement list. And so, in doing all of that, we accidentally skipped over announcing two new. Uh, Two new families who've placed membership. So Ken and Doris Brown are sitting right back here. If y'all could raise your hand or, or stand up, we want to welcome you to the family. And Audrey Stewart is back there in the back. We want to welcome Audrey as well. It's always a, a wonderful thing to have people place membership, and that means we get to put you to work. And so I didn't want to wait till next week to announce you because you know now you're now you're committed because we've made a public public statement. So we're gonna we're gonna put you all to work. Open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. We're in week 4 of our Therefore series where we are looking at some of these, uh, these commands that we find in Scripture, these, um, these, these directives that were given, and, and we're relating them back to the, to the teaching that was typically before them, that kind of roots them in a gospel truth. And in doing so, I think it will motivate us to live better lives. This has certainly been a powerful study for me, and I hope it's impacted you as well. While you're turning there, I want to poll the audience. I want to get a feel for where we're at on some things. I want to ask you a question, but first I need you to think back and remember back when you were in school. All right, and you, you and some of you, it's been a while, but, but, I th- but you can do this with me. And remember back when the teacher would give you that dreaded group assignment that was worth a significant portion of your grade. Now, I suspect we have two separate groups of people in here, people that were really excited about a group project and people that were really disgusted by the fact that a majority of your grade was going to come from a group project. So I want to see where we're at, where the spread is. So first of all, if you are one of those people who just loves group projects, raise your hand. All right, we've got a few slackers in here. I feel like I learned a lot about you just in that one little thing. All of you other people, you overachievers, you can raise your hand now, those of you who hate group projects. Okay, I, I joke. I got in trouble early service for making that joke because there's a, there's a spectrum of people. On the, I, I get it. I know it's not that polarized. But the truth is group projects are, are kind of a struggle. What is the ultimate group project? You can put it on the screen. What's the ultimate group project? This is it. I got this from my wife the other day via Instagram. For women, pregnancy is the ultimate group project where you did 99.9% of the work, but you both got an A. <clears throat> Man, I tell you what, that's true. You women carry around that baby for nine months and then have to go through the process of labor, and then when the baby arrives, everyone, what? Everyone gets an A, right? It's the cutest baby you've ever seen, and we all get credit for it. So I suppose I have been on both sides of the group project thing. Back in school, I hated them, and I, and I really think that's because of my need to be in control. Um, I didn't like the idea of relying on other people for the grade that I was going to receive, and looking back now, I realize it was less about that and more about learning to work with a different type of people with different personalities, and I mean, this was really about people skills as much as everything. It seems like a lot of you have probably, whether it was a group project or not, had an experience in your life where you felt unfairly paired. Um, maybe you suffered for it, maybe you didn't. 
I think there's also times in life, the opposite is true, where we can be grouped or paired with someone with a complementary personality. And, and when we find ourselves in those situations, be it in a school project or at work or maybe even in our spiritual walk, if we find that we can often do more than we could accomplish individually. We have a word for that. We call it synergy. That just doesn't happen quite as often. Thinking about these uh, group projects and this pairing with other people, I want that to be in the forefront of your mind kind of as we walk through this fourth therefore statement. I think as we step into it, you're at first not going to really see where I'm going, but as we get towards the end, we're going to circle back to round to this idea of a group project. 2 Corinthians 7.1 is where we're going to start. Now, you'll notice I usually use the ESV. Today I'm going to present this verse from the New American Standard, and I have a really good reason for that, because it's the Therefore series, and the ESV just says since. So, we're going we're gonna to read from the New American Standard. Therefore, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. I really love this therefore statement. And one of the reasons is because he leads with just absolute, utter clarity on what it's in reference to. These promises. So we look at these promises and we find our eyes tracing back up through the text to find what promises he's talking about. And and it very clearly becomes evident to us that he's talking about the verses that immediately precede. In fact, as we look at the content of 2 Corinthians chapter 6 and 7, we see there's this very clear, distinct thought that starts in verse 14 and runs through chapter 7, verse 1, and it kind of stands alone. I know everything is always connected, but this, this thought is definitely a unit. And so I think for us really to wrap our mind around what Paul is going at, we have to read that, that grouping of the text, and I want to do that together. Starting in chapter 6, verse 14, let's read. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial, or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people." Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. So here's what I want to do. I want to break down 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1 with the verses that precede it in mind. And so we're going to look at each section and then take our eyes back up to the top part of the text and kind of see how it sheds light on what Paul is trying to teach us. And he starts off with this powerful statement, Therefore, having these promises... And so the first thing that we do is we look up in the text and we seek to identify those promises. What are the promises that he's talking about? And I think we can pretty quickly discern that it's in verses 16 through 18. This is a collection of quotes from the Old Testament, and it's God speaking about the ways that he's going to interact with his people. And I want to read it again. These are the promises that he's talking about. Starting halfway through verse 16, God says, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. 
and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Skipping down to verse 18, and I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So these quotes from the Old Testament tell us this reality about what God has promised. And I really see three things showing up here. We see that we're promised God's presence, God's provision, and God's protection. So at the beginning, he says, I will make my dwelling among them. And this takes me back to this idea that we see in the Garden of Eden, the time when God literally walked among his creation and with his people. And God said, there's going to be a time when that's the type of relationship we're going to have together again. I'm going to dwell among you. I'm going to walk among you. And in that time, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. And if you didn't understand that last phrase just correctly, he, he repeats it again at the end with different words. He says, here's what it's going to look like. I'm going to be your father. And you're going to be my sons and my daughters. And I hear that and I think about all that that means. That means that God is promising that someday we're going to live in his household. Someday we're going to have a relationship with him where he is our provider and our protector. There's going to be a time when his dwelling place is with us again and we exist in relationship with him. That's the promise that Paul is drawing us to. It's actually something we've talked quite a bit about the last few weeks, this promise of of being with God someday, what heaven is going to be like. And that's what he's talking about. And in response to that promise, Paul says we should take a certain posture. He goes on to say, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit. So what does that mean? The NIV uses the phrase purify from all that contaminates. And I really liked that. I like those way those words resonate in my mind. I think we get our description of exactly what he's talking about here, this, uh, this cleansing ourselves from defilement, by backing up to verses 14 through 16. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers, he starts off by saying. In other words, this is the, the metaphor that he's using, and it's kind of an agricultural metaphor. But then he goes on to, to ask a series of rhetorical questions to expand on it. So he says, don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then he says, for what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So he's using this metaphor of being unequally yoked to help us wrap our mind around the type of defilement that he's talking about. He expands with these examples, but, but in, a, in, in sort, the cleansing he's talking about is a separation, a separation or a division of the profane from the holy. More specifically, if you read closely, you'll see that he is talking about the separation of believers from non-believers. Now the phrase cleanse, the phrase cleanse draws us back to distinctly Jewish language. This idea of ceremonial cleansing. We've read about that in regard to temple worship. That um, goes back to the verse 17 where he tells him to touch no unclean thing. And I think in a sense Paul is recognizing that he's talking to a group of people who have touched unclean things. A group of people like us who have been yoked with non-believers, who have brought idols into the temple. And Paul is stepping in and he's pleading them to get things cleaned up. While cleanse has ceremonial undertones, we understand the concept today. What do you tell your children, parents, before you sit down for a meal? 
wash your hands. Wash your hands. Why do, we, why do we tell them that? We're not talking about spiritual realities when we ask them to wash their hands, but there's a lot of parallels there because we know that their hands are filthy because they've been playing in the mud, and they need to wash their hands because there's germs on their hands, things that are going to damage them and make life difficult. We think of them being stinky and dirty and unappealing and the things that they're going to put in their mouth, and we say, no, that's not best for you. You need to wash your hands before you eat. And I believe this is how God sees us when we are interacting with sinful things. We love our children when they have dirty hands. But that doesn't mean that we're okay with them eating a meal like that. And I think God looks at us and he loves us when we have dirty hands, but it doesn't mean that we are in a place to eat a meal with him like that. It's like we're trying to eat with dirty hands. Or maybe another uh, metaphor that would make sense to you is tromping through the house with muddy shoes. You love your children when their shoes are muddy, right? But when they come up to the door, what do you say? Whoa, whoa, hold on just a second. You take those shoes off. Why? Out of reverence for your mother, right? You're not walking through the house that way. You're not going to treat our house this way. You love them when their hands are dirty. You love them when their shoes are muddy. But it doesn't mean you're going to let them in the house and cover it with mud. Paul is saying this. Therefore, since, because of these promises, because we know that that God's dwelling place is soon going to be among us, then we have some work to do to prepare ourselves to, to live in that house and to eat that meal. And he goes on to expand upon what that should look like. He says, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. Bringing holiness to completion in reverence to God. The NIV says, perfecting holiness out of reverence for God. So let's talk first about holiness and then about fear or reverence. The text says, perfecting holiness completing our sanctification, bringing holiness to completion. I love the NET's translation. It says, thus accomplish holiness. And the translator notes state that the Greek seems to tie this to the result of our cleansing. In other words, this is this process that we go through, this cleansing that we go through that brings us to this state of holiness, sanctification. Holiness is the idea of being different, unique, set apart, If we look back up to the text we just read, it's described. He paints a word picture for us of what it should look like. He says, don't be unequally yoked. When you're unequally yoked, that's the opposite of holiness. Holiness means that you don't partner with lawlessness, that you don't fellowship with darkness, that you don't do things that attempt to mix Christ with other gods. God himself, in the middle of the Old Testament quote, says, go out from their midst and be separate from them. That that, Paul, that God is calling us to, that separation, that going out from, that is holiness. Holiness means being clean. Holiness means being in a state that is worthy of God's presence. And this holiness is brought to completion or perfection when we cleanse ourselves from all that defiles. That's the structure. That's the argument that Paul is making. But he roots it very directly to this attitude that we are to have about God. And the word used in the ESV is fear. It doesn't appear that there's a great English equivalent for the word that we translate fear. And and we see it all throughout Scripture. I think we intuitively know that it's probably not used in the sense that we use it. 
It has a lot of elements to it. Worshipful submission, reverential awe, obedient respect. We see it translated reverence in the NIV and the NET. In summary, here's what we are going for. Because of who God is, Paul says, because of who he is, you need to act a certain way. You give God respect and reverence and honor and submission, and you understand his authority and his power and his perfection, and you look at him and you see that God is everything that we are not. And when we see that, we strive to be worthy. We are working to prepare ourselves to be in his presence. So as I start wrapping my mind around what this text is calling us to, I start wrestling with a pretty big difficulty. I think some of you may be wrestling with it right now in your head. It brings me to this huge question because as I look at my knowledge of Scripture as a whole, it would seem that the thing that Paul is asking us to do is impossible. Like, really, Paul? You're asking me to push myself towards perfection, but I look at Scripture, and it, and it seems that that's not something that I can do. Can we even do this? Like, what's going on here? And I, and I think that requires us to unravel and unpack it just a little bit. That's a valid question. I mean, the reality is this. The way that we cleanse ourselves is through Jesus Christ. That's the only way that we can experience salvation and have our sins washed away. And so when we look at the entire council of Scripture, our first inclination is to come up to a verse like this and say, no, no, that can't be what it means. But I wonder what gives us permission to remove our own responsibility from this text. I look at it, and there's a very clear directive here. It's telling you to do something. This isn't talking about Jesus' action in your life here. It seems to be directly talking to you and say, you have some responsibility here. There's something that you need to do. There's a division that you need to make. There's a choice that you need to make. And I think for us to really wrap our mind around what's happening here, we have to understand the distinction between salvation and sanctification. You see, our salvation, our forgiveness cannot be accomplished on our own there is no power of the will there is no worthwhile endeavor there is nothing that we can do to accomplish salvation that is only available as a free gift from jesus christ but there's sanctification as well and i think sometimes we unfairly mix the two sanctification is a bit different and i think understanding that difference is really really important when we don't understand the difference, we end up like the Romans with kind of this attitude of let us go on sinning so that grace may abound. And Paul says, no, 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 that's not how it works. You have a responsibility here as well. If you look back to the first phrase, the text says this, therefore, having these promises. This is the, frame, the phrase that frames the entire discussion. And Paul did not write this. He did not say, in order for you to receive the promises. Paul said, because you have these promises. A promise from God is something that you can take to the bank. He is writing to saved people who have the promise of being under God's presence and protection and provision, and it is in response to those promises. It is in response to your salvation that you step up and pursue holiness and that's sanctification 
Sanctification involves the Holy Spirit. It's a process, though, that we live out during our tenure here on earth. It doesn't earn us salvation. It's in response to it. And when it is completed, we will find that we are totally different than those around us. And that's what this verse is all about. Allow me to summarize verse 1 in my own words. You, you should be motivated to perfect your holiness out of reverence for God, confident that he will one day be dwelling with us exactly like he has promised. Let me place it again in metaphorical form. Because you have been given this wonderful and beautiful home, take off your muddy shoes. I really think that's what Paul is saying. He's he's not saying you can save yourself, but he's saying that you can and should participate in purifying yourselves in response to this amazing gift that you have been given. So now that that I feel like we kind of have our mind wrapped around what Paul is calling us to, I want to get personal. I want to turn this back towards you and ask this question. What makes your shoes muddy? I want to think about that in a real practical way. Real life things that defile our bodies and spirit. Real life things that we need to be cleansed of. Each of you is probably thinking something different. I think that our first thought goes towards vices. Perhaps this passage could be applied to vices. I mean, we certainly should not taint our bodies with unhealthy living or sexual immorality. That's certainly a biblical principle. But the truth is this, this, this verse isn't about alcohol or tobacco or cursing or dirty jokes. In fact, I think we at times make, try to make this verse mostly about marriage because it talks about yoking yourself to someone. And while I certainly think there's maybe more of an application there, it's not even really about that. It's about something bigger, something bigger. Read closely and you'll see. He is speaking of our relationships with people and how we live in culture. And he's looking at us and he's calling us to be separate and different and unique and identifiable. And we're to do it because of who we know God to be and what we anticipate our future relationship with him to be like. And this is, this is where I want to pull you back to our opening illustration and, and your disdain for group projects, most of you at least, okay? This unequal yoking is another way of describing how we constantly try to join things with catastrophic results. Let me make this statement. Life is not meant to be lived out as a group project between Christianity and you fill in the blank. There's several things we could put in that slot. Life isn't meant to be a group project project between Christianity and whatever cause it is that you might latch on to. And I wonder how each of you would fill in that blank. Where would you be most likely to yoke yourself to an unbeliever and ruin your purity? Where are you most likely to attempt to harmonize or or partner with someone or something that will ultimately bring you down? And I, I want to make a few suggestions. I think these suggestions that I'm about to make may challenge some of you. I think they probably apply more to specific groups. I'm hesitant. There's a lot of crossover between them. So my but my first one I think is mainly going to be something that our young people see. And as I work through this, I think it's gonna apply to older and older Christians as we go through the list. To our young people. 
I think most of you know the things that the scripture teaches on certain moral issues, especially things like sexuality. That's a big one in our culture today. Yet I know from my interactions with our young people that you see this type of living all day long. You see these people who don't share the same sexual values that we do, and you look at them, and the truth is this, they're doing really good things. They're really nice, pleasant, wonderful people doing awesome things for those around them, probably some of the most accepting and kind people you've been around. Young people are exposed to that all day long. I think some of us who are older are starting to see it as well. And then you come here to us as a church, and you see us do things like make jokes that undermine these oppressed groups like the LGBT community. Maybe you see other Christians laughing at it. I mean, I think we generally treat people well, but we still struggle to speak well of them. And you look at that, and you look at those attitudes that we have and those words that we use, and I think that you're going to be tempted to think something like this. You're going to say, okay, I'm not maybe ready to totally reject my faith over here. I see some good things, but I look over here, and I see that maybe this is really how it should be. So maybe I can, I can grab some of this, and I can grab a little bit of this, and we'll just put this group project together, and we can really make the world a better place if we can encapsulate both of these. And I read this passage, and I see that Paul is saying, no, 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 don't, don't do that. That is a group project that is ultimately doomed to failure because you don't share the same foundational principles. You're not motivated by the same things. Don't yoke yourself to unbelievers in that way. I'm here to tell those of you who see that, we desperately need you here to help us fix our problems. We desperately need you to partner with us as believers and help us fix the problems that we have here. We, what is not needed is for you to partner with these other groups. What is needed for you to, to, to plant your feet here and help bring our holiness to completion. We need those of you who see that. You know, I think as, as maybe some of us get older, the same type of principle applies, but maybe not so much to things of just sexual immorality, but we see other certain moral issues, things uh, pertaining to social justice or race relations. You see things like poverty and addiction and the lack of opportunities for groups of people and hateful rhetoric against those groups. And very similar to our young people, you tend to, to see sometimes how the church responds and you tend to say, okay, I'm not willing to give up on this, but I'm going to take a little bit from over here and I'm going to take a little bit from over here and then I'm going to pull them together and if we yoke these two together, that's going to be the group project that's going to change the world. And Paul says, no, that's not how it works. We need you here Pressing, pressing your holiness to completion. We need those of you here in the church, driven by the, the principles of Christ to fix those problems. Now I'm going to move on to the one that I poked at a little bit next week. I'm going to poke a little more today. I think most of you know the things Scripture teaches on kingdom principles, like who we belong to. But there's a booger that I see rearing its head here at Oldham Lane and, and, and also in the church as a whole. And it's the idea that some sort of salvation is going to come from us voting the right people into office. And that one scares me maybe more than the others. Because this is an area that I think we've bought the idea hook, line, and sinker that we think this, this is the group project that's going to work. 
And so we proceed to pick and choose which political candidate best aligns with our principles. But ultimately, at the end of the day, we all know that we're making a compromise for the greater good. There is not a political party that is driven by belief in Jesus Christ. It's fine if you don't, if you vote, and it's fine if you don't vote. I, I, I don't care. But don't yoke yourself to a political party or a political candidate and think that's going to be the solution to this world or this country's problems. Church, when we try to wed politics and Christianity, we end up with a terrible group project that absolutely will fail. What the world needs is the church, God's people, sanctified and set apart. And we need that church in every nation under every government. If you want to change this nation, then put as much effort into teaching the people the truth about Christ as you put into your politics. And that, that will change the world. The devil has found some very sneaky ways to yoke us to non-believers. And I think he often latches on to things we see as good but we compromise our foundation. And what we end up being is a people who are thrown out of balance, unable to really accomplish the kingdom goals that we were set out to do. We end up having muddy shoes that keeps us outside. Paul says, don't be tricked. I want you to think about it. If you have different foundational values and a driving purpose, you are headed for a train wreck. The church is a powerful force, but God God wants it to be pure, and we don't need to bring in anyone or anything else to make that work. How would you live differently if you thought God was going to visit tomorrow? I think that's a really good question in light of Paul's statement here. And I think this is Paul's argument. Paul says, it's happening. You know it's happening. That's the promise that he's made us. That's the hope that we have because of our belief in Jesus. So, so live that way and quit acting like you can play in both sandpits. Live like God is about to show up and be with you, like you are about to move into his house. Live that way every day. Church, you're never going to make the world a better place by compromising your values for the greater good. Never. You will never make the world a better place by inviting the profane into the holy. Both of these things are like trying to run a group project with someone who hasn't even read the syllabus. And you might feel like you are making progress at time, but at the end of the day, it is doomed for failure. We need to relearn the art of being holy without being jerks. We need to learn how to exist as a people with unique identity and purpose, separate and clean, because God is coming to stay with us soon. And he has told us what is best. As we close, I'd like to extend an invitation. It could be that there are many Christians here that have been living without these promises in mind. You've gotten yourself mixed up in ungodly things and ungodly people, and you need to purify yourself. And that's something that I believe that we can do together. That's what we are called to to do as a Christian community, is to pray for one another and encourage one another and pursue holiness and sanctification together. So if you've been slipping, let us help. Maybe you would like to study more about these promises. You're not convinced. We would love to study with you. Or maybe, maybe you're ready to be saved. Maybe you are ready to put on Christ in baptism. You understand who he is and believe in his promises, and you're ready to begin the process of sanctifying yourself, of your building your future with him. And if that's you, the water is ready. I hope you won't delay. Whatever your need might be, come forward as we stand and sing.